Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM in the Peel region of Ontario, Canada. We're broadcasting across North America, also online, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki. My partner, David Clement, ain't on the call today. He's enjoying the beautiful cabins of uh, Ontario. (laughs) It must be pretty cold out there. And I hope he brought his Vax Pass. Uh, But uh, definitely uh, great to be back on the program. Uh, I know David was pitch hitting for me a little bit last week. In the last few weeks, things have been a bit busy at the home, but uh, things are going great here on the program. Consumer Choice Center, our organization, we've been very busy putting out all types of research and articles and uh, social media graphics and videos and interviews and all of the rest. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, But just to highlight, I actually have two great things we're going to play throughout the course of the show today. We're going to begin with an interview that we conducted with Congressman Larry Bouchon. Uh, He's actually Dr. Larry Bouchon. He is a Indiana congressman uh, from the Republican Party. He's been very active on many medical issues, on consumer issues. So we thought we'd catch up with him Uh, We have a little nice interview playing, I believe, in the next block, next segment. So you guys are looking forward to that, hopefully. That'll be very interesting. Uh, We also have that uh, that we'll put up on our YouTube page if you'd like to watch the whole thing and share it afterwards. Not every day you can get a congressman, you know, on the line. But uh, so far, our record is pretty good. Pretty good. We started this program, if you remember, in January 2020. Uh, We are now the, what are we now? Well, if you're listening on the radio, 13th of November, 2021, uh, that just goes to show that things are, are working. And we're almost on our 100th episode. This is uh, number 97. So we've, uh, we've been doing it every single week, folks, bringing you that love. And then after our interview with uh, Larry Bouchon, uh, here's a fun clip. If you guys love listening to David go on his diatribes, you'll love his testimony at the New York State Assembly. So David actually, and hopefully he'll give us some updates next week, but he bravely got in his vehicle and he traveled across the border from Canada to New York, from Ontario to New York, drove, I don't know what it was, six, seven hours to Albany to give testimony on accessibility of electric cars. Uh, This stems from the research that you might have heard David talk about. Uh, We had the Consumer Choice Center Electric Vehicle Accessibility Index that he put together with our colleague Elizabeth Hicks a few months ago, uh, basically discussing what are the laws and restrictions in place that make it difficult for consumers to even buy an electric vehicle. Let's not even talk about all of the mandates and bans on gas-powered vehicles for now. But there's all kinds of, of things that are put in the way, and uh, one of them is dealer franchise laws meaning that if a car manufacturer, an auto manufacturer, wants to sell to you, the consumer, they cannot do it directly. They need to go through a dealership. I mean, this is a pretty pertinent example of what we would call cronyism. But uh, as many of the opponents uh, we heard from testimony the other day, uh, they just call it the right way to do things. It's the New York way of doing things. Uh, So you guys can listen to that. We'll play that after... Uh, the interview with uh, Larry Bouchon, who is our congressman from Indiana, talking to us about all great things, and David's testimony. It's a a long one, so it's going to take up a whole segment, 
Uh, but David got in some very good zingers. He answered some questions. Uh, he actually started out pretty spicy, if you ask me. He went through some of the statements of uh, someone who's opposing this new law to get rid of all the dealer franchise laws and uh, actually was in favor of doing much the same in another state, but didn't want to do it in New York for some reason. So he kind of brought that discrepancy up and did a great job. So we'll play that. And um, yeah, so you guys can still listen to a little little bit of David uh, for right now. I <laughs> uh, hope you guys are doing well out there. If you are listening to this program after it has aired, then you are probably listening on a podcast. If you're listening on a podcast, might I suggest a brand new podcasting 2.0 compliant application. What does that mean? Other than your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or Overcast, or wherever you're listening, these brand new podcasting 2.0 apps allow you to have Bitcoin wallets. I'm talking about Podfriend, Fountain, Breeze. Uh, there are a good number of them that you guys can learn about over at podcastindex.org. Uh, these are the apps that allow you to donate Satoshis or small amounts of Bitcoin directly. You can see chapters, uh, there are the transcript. I mean, uh, we're joining the podcasting 2.0 revolution. We're one of the, I believe we are the first radio show who is doing this internationally. Uh, you can learn a lot more about that. We do link to it in our show notes and everything that you see in our uh, articles and everything else. So you can always see Podcasting 2.0 and Consumer Choice Radio is right there. You're listening here throughout North America, uh, syndicated in all of our stations, or you're listening on the podcast version. If you do like what you hear, if you think we have a little bit of value in the analysis that we provide in the interviews with congressmen, with senators, with uh, prime, with not prime ministers, hell, we'll get there, but, uh, but any parliamentarians or experts, if you like what you hear and you want to give a little bit of value, you can go ahead and hit that boost button. If you're using one of these podcasting 2.0 apps, you have a wallet there and you are able to give us a little bit of Satoshis, just a couple cents at a time to say that you appreciate the content, you like what we're doing, and we can continue. So that is podcasting 2.0. I put more details on our website. You guys can go and follow that up and uh, really do check out one of these podcasting 2.0 apps. I, I think it's great the way that we're we're seeing the growth of the crypto economy, cryptocurrency, and at the same time, the growth of podcasting and radio and trying to provide entertainment for people. And we have all those tools available right now, and it's changing all the time. It's not all about Facebook and Twitter, guys. That's not the internet. It's much more than that. And I think this uh, program provides us with a little bit of detail on that. Let's get into the uh, stories here on Consumer Choice Radio. A couple things. Well, it seems the inflation thing is pretty much everyone's agreeing now, right? That that was something that for a long I mean, I remember many years we've talked about inflation and uh, people were denying it and saying it's not happening. And then we heard it's all like transitory. Uh, but now it is pretty much true. So I think in the last year, uh, the number is that we have around 6% inflation in the United States. I cannot uh, imagine that it is any lower in a place like Canada or throughout Europe. So 6%, uh, that, that means a lot. And there are actually a great number of studies, I don't know if you guys have, have followed that, as to not just the economic impact of inflation, but almost the sociological impact of inflation, what it kind of means. Things stop working, 
as they do, basically things start costing a bit more or start getting crappier. Uh, people stop doing all of the good quality work and just all the corners are cut and things start getting eroded. And it's it's just fascinating. I will have some more book recommendations probably for next week. I'm still going through a few of them. I don't want to give out any recommendations at the moment just because we have you know different authors and I don't want to favor one right now. But the inflation stuff, real talk. And we have a, a lot of interesting thought on cryptocurrencies, on Bitcoin, and, and now a lot of mainstream stuff that's happening. Um, might I remind you, we have our own smart crypto regulation policy primer that we've written here at the Consumer Choice Center. We've sent that to various congressional offices, to parliamentarians, uh, also to parliamentarians in Europe, uh, because they're thinking up ways that they can you know, discuss cryptocurrencies in the law, the ways they can tax it, hopefully very little, and how we can continue innovation in this sector. So that's the kind of stuff that we know. With inflation, people are talking about it a lot more. There's a lot more discussion. Uh, finally, people are admitting it. And, you know, if you're an or ordinary person and you've been shopping at Walmart or Target or whatever, you've seen this. You know you're paying more at the end of the month. But most of the people who, you know, sit in New York and L.A., D.C. and Ottawa and all the big capitals, I mean, they, they don't do that. They're not pinching pennies when they go to pay their grocery bill like you are. And that's why we always try to reach out to people like you, consumers who... Don't just have all the disposable income in the world. You're very limited. Those of us who are limited in what we can buy each and every week and each and every month, those of us who have to put enough food on the table for our kids and then have to pay for the bills at kindergarten, got to pay for the bills in their sports, then you got to pay this, and then you got a fine coming for a speeding. I mean, there's all kinds of things that just chew away at your salary. And to know that your money is going to be even worth less, yeah, that doesn't do good. Obviously, in the New York Times, we have someone says like, uh, or someone like Paul Krugman saying like, "Don't panic about inflation," right? <laughs> someone like him has been calling for it uh, for the better part of, of twenty years uh, that since he's been in the public eye. But yeah, that's just the Paul Krugman type thing, uh, guys. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, thankfully, you guys uh, did not have to listen to all of the proceedings of the COP twenty six climate change conference. We had a special episode last week all about that with our colleague Bill Vietz and the Consumer Podcast. You can go back and listen to it in your app store if you want to or on our website. And, you know, we, we're not getting too much from this. I know they're coming up with a final statement. We'll really see how this impacts things. But, you know, there's another cop, another one. And I know you guys know that we are interested in, in harm reduction and things like vaping and innovative technologies when it comes to nicotine. And there's another conference that's we're also wrapping up in Geneva called the FCTC Framework Convention on Tobacco Control Conference of the Parties. Uh, it's their ninth iteration. Uh, this is a basically the annual tobacco control event. My only gripe with this event is they consider your vape stick, your jewel, your open tank system, your pod, whatever. They say that is a cigarette, that is a tobacco device. It needs to be taxed the same. And in many instances, should not be allowed at all. There should be no flavors. Tax should be through the roof. You barely should be able to buy it, touch it, get your hands on it. So I've, I've written an article about that in the Parliament magazine, which I'll also put in the show notes. It's also something that we've 
really discussed here at Consumer Choice Center for a long time, if any of our social media. And I've been there twice. Went uh, once in India. <laughs> that was a blast. And then another time in Geneva in Switzerland, uh, where they're actually having it right now. And uh, it's quite a conflab, folks. Uh, you know, it's if you talk about ideological purity, oh boy, don't go in there with a different opinion because uh, they'll really try to throw you out there. And I don't just mean, you know, the conference organizers. I mean uh, some mainstream journalists who are at the event and might want to kick you out, um, like happened to me. <laughs> so, yeah, that's another conference that we've had our eye on. There's been a, a couple of, of these, you know, big UN conferences and events, and the problem is that they're so complex and convoluted and out there. Most people just don't know what's going on. And you don't even know what your own country is saying there. Like, do we know what Canada is saying, what the U.S. is saying when they're getting in front of those microphones or when they're in those meetings and what the rules should be on vape devices, e-cigarettes? I mean, we don't always know. We barely know what's happening at the climate change conference sometimes. You know, they're behind the scenes. You have John Kerry who's negotiating on whether or not you'll be allowed to have an SUV. I think there's a lot more democracy. We need a lot more coverage. We need a lot more interested journalism in what's happening at these international events because these things impact you and me. And if, you know, they're talking about banning certain parts of agriculture, I mean, that's going to make your food bills more expensive. If they're talking about tariffs, if they're talking about reducing international trade, these are the kind of things that are going to impact you as a consumer on an individual basis. And that's what we don't want. We want to have more choice. We want to have more ability to bring, put food on the table, to pay for our kids, to pay for our families, and to afford life. Why else are we here? So a lot more to come here on Consumer Choice Radio. Next, we have an interview with Congressman Larry Bouchon. And after that, uh, playing some testimony from David Clement at the New York State Assembly. It's going to be a beautiful weekend, guys. Thanks so much for listening to our program. We'll be right back after this. Until then, listen to Richard Durana. Back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina, and Saga 960 in the Peel region uh, of Ontario. Um, it is with great pleasure that I get, get to introduce our guest for this week's program. Uh, he is a cardiothoracic surgeon by trade and has represented Indiana's 8th District since 2011. Welcome to the show, Congressman Larry Bouchon. Well, thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's it's obviously been uh, a pretty wild time uh, in Congress. Uh, it feels like the infrastructure bill um, was the bill that was kind of forever debated, and now it uh, looks like it is behind us. But I just wanted to get your your take on the infrastructure bill Um has spending gone too far? Is there pork in this that does that maybe needs to be removed? Um, and so, if you could just explain to our listeners where you where you view 
the infrastructure bill uh, in terms of its current standing? Well, let me just say this. There's a lot of positive things in the infrastructure bill. I think that in a bipartisan way, we all know we need roads, bridges, rural broadband for areas like I, re I represent in Indiana. Um, you know, our airports need some help, transit in the cities, all those things are positive. But then there's a lot of things in there, I think, that are probably uh, too, much, too much spending. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, said it's going to add roughly $260 billion to the deficit, which means that it's not paid for. So there's a lot of things I think Republicans think are probably at this point not ready for prime time. A lot of the charging stations for electric cars and all kinds of things that we see as handouts to the Democrats' uh, political friends. But the reality is, is that it passed through the Senate and it passed through the House. I was disappointed with my 13 Republican colleagues because I think if they had not voted for it, I think we could have actually got a better infrastructure deal. I want an infrastructure deal. But uh, overall, there's a lot of positive things in there. But I do think there's going to be a lot of wasteful spending that uh, we probably could have eliminated. Yes, and hopefully uh, Congress will be able to track that as well. I know that was a big thing in 2009 after Barack Obama's uh, big plan. There's a lot of tracking, hopefully some hearings. We can see where some of this money is going. I uh, wanted to change yeah. gears um, a little bit on this um, because you know we had the, the squabbles in Congress, and we've got a lot of things that are happening in the White House and throughout the different agencies. Uh, but one thing where you have been very clear, and as a medical doctor, you have uh, been very forward in saying that vaccination is important. Uh, however, you do have yes. some qualms about President uh, Joe Biden's vaccine mandate. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as you mentioned, as a physician, I think uh, the data shows the vaccine's safe and effective. Even if you get a breakthrough case and you've been vaccinated, the data shows you don't end up in the ICU, and it's very, very rare to have a death related to a vaccinated individual. That said, a federal mandate is a bridge too far. The federal government should not be mandating that U.S. citizens get a medical treatment if they don't want that treatment. And that's what this is. Don't you know? It is a vaccination. Yes, I understand that uh, there are people frustrated with the low-level vaccination in certain areas of the country, but the federal government should not be mandating any medical treatment if the person doesn't want it. Um, you know, it's not on us at the federal level to decide what's good for you. It's you and your doctor. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's an, an, an important perspective. And I, I mean, we've already seen some private companies sort this out for themselves. Yes. Um, some of them have, have decided, and I think it's it's probably appropriate in some instances, like if you're in a meatpacking plant where we saw so many outbreaks, um, especially throughout um, late last year, it may, may be appropriate. But then at the same time, it, it does leave me scratching my head where it's like, well, if you work at a golf course on the grounds crew, I, I mean, yeah, it would be great if you got the vaccine in terms of my own personal personal opinion, but I'm not sure how what the what is the efficacy of making some outdoor worker, uh, if he happens to work at a large company, get the vaccine? And it's like we may be we we may be missing that kind of nuance in the discussion here. Yeah, I would agree with that. The other thing is is the federal employee and federal contractor part of this. I mean, I think the federal government has a little more uh, leeway there, but let me just tell you. In my district, I have a federal prison. It's the Supermax for the United States, Terre Haute, Indiana. They have about a 46% vaccination rate amongst their employees. They're on their pathway to being terminated 
what are we going to do with the workforce in that situation? You know, are we really going to terminate these people if they don't want to get a vaccine? And here's the kicker. The inmates don't have to get vaccinated. So there's a lot of things in there that need to be addressed. Uh, if the private sector companies want to mandate their, vac their employees get vaccinated, that's their decision. But the federal government should not be mandating medical treatments. And and on the on the medical side, this is this is a bit of a different subject, but it's something that Yaela and I have talked about. Um, so John Oliver, the late night show host, had a very long rant about the need, basically, to ban all PFAS chemicals, otherwise known yeah. as man-made chemicals. And I'd done some digging on this and looked at where these were used in areas where. I mean, obviously, it's terrible and it's bad for human health if it's being dumped into waterways and, and really nefarious things like that. But there are some legitimate uses. And I came across your comment on this matter in regards to medical equipment. And so what is your take on where there may be utility in regards to these man-made chemicals? Well, first of all, there's thousands of them, as you know. And so each one is potentially different. There are a lot. They're very toxic and have contaminated groundwater, and we need to address that. In the medical field, there's a substance called polytetrafluoroethylene, uh, or Gore-Tex, you know, and that is used in vascular grafts and patches really for decades very safely, and it's been shown to be safe uh, when implanted into humans and really shouldn't be included in this type of a ban. Uh, you know, the Gore-Tex also in your jackets and your uh, gloves and all those things, same compound. Um, and it's been shown as long as it's not heated up to a certain high level of temperature, uh, it's not dangerous. It doesn't cause any problems at all. So this is going to be very detrimental to the medical industry if it's banned. It's used in all kinds of devices, uh, medical, vascular grafts, and patches. And wh what do you think the... What do you think the just like, why is it that some of the folks on the other side seem to have such a huge blind spot here? Because it's one of those things where I think we, everybody can agree that groundwater and a clean water approach yeah. is, is definitely the way to go. And yet when I hear from folks on the other side of this debate, they just seem like they don't care uh, in regards to what these externalities are. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, have you yeah, experienced that in Congress? Yeah, I think what happened is at the committee level, the Energy and Commerce Committee, my, the committee I'm on, is they just didn't want any amendments to their bill. They wanted to get it through the, the House. Uh, but I think reasonable uh, people will prevail on this. I think when people realize you real, that some of these compounds really uh, are safe and they're used for all kinds of things, uh, if you really, I don't have, really look at what PFAS are used in, you'd be surprised, and you probably have done that. Uh, and your your listeners and viewers should also. But I think co cooler heads will prevail. They just didn't want any amendments to their bill in the House and wanted to get it through. But you see, the Senate hasn't acted on it. And the reason is, is because there's going to be some substantial changes and probably some PFAS compounds which are going to be exempted from this ban. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio, by the way. We're, we're talking to Congressman Larry Bouchon from Indiana, medical doctor, uh, He's actually been a hero on many different medical topics. And uh, if we could switch that a little bit, uh, Congressman, because I know that one thing that you've definitely been forefront uh, in pursuing is hospital and medical transparency. And there are a lot yes. of questions about our healthcare system, about how much things cost, the role of insurance, 
Uh, what, what are some of the efforts that you've spearheaded and led in Congress in really trying to make sure that our medical bills can be lower as Americans? Well, the, the number one thing in the healthcare system is it's not a true free market. And, you know, there's no what I'll call consumerism. For the most part, consumers uh, don't have the ability to drive down prices in the healthcare system in general. Now, it works in things like LASIK eye surgery, where it's paid for by you, and the consumer can drive the price. And that's happened. You saw over the last 15 years, the LASIK eye surgery, the cost has gone way down. The doctors are better. The equipment's better, but it's less costly. The regular healthcare system, because of the third-party payer system, doesn't have that. There's a disconnect between the patient and the payer. And so, honestly, there's no, no incentive for the healthcare system at large to control the cost. And so I, what I've been trying to do is help get more quality information on what quality care you're getting and more data on pricing to the consumer. And that's very difficult because, because let me tell you, the healthcare system at large really doesn't want you to know because, uh, and I've been part of the system for 30 years, but that's what I'm working on. I mean, all kind, there's all kinds of things you can do. Um, the Trump administration wanted the hospitals to produce their price listing been done, but it's in, in a complicated way that the consumer can't understand. The only way to get healthcare costs down is the consumers have to get involved and drive it and demand lower prices and better quality. And honestly, at the federal level, it's been frustrating. Well, we, we, we do love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there was, um, it was either in Oklahoma or Alabama, and it was some surgical clinic. And you can actually go on their website and you can see what a hernia surgery costs yeah. or what an ACL tear repair costs. And from my view, I was like, well, that's kind of refreshing. Uh, yes. One, one because it lets you know right off the bat and it helps you avoid some of those horror stories where someone's like, oh, I broke my arm and I got a $50,000 bill because they charged me eight grand for one of the screws. Right. Um, but also, I mean, in so many other areas of the American economy, people are able to protest with their feet and with their wallet and say, That's this, is, this, is, this is not a good price, that this is not the service I want. And that seems to be really missing from the healthcare debate um, and almost gets left by the wayside, I think, when you have the larger macro debate of does the government pay for everything, socialized care, all of that. And it's right. like, well, why don't we insert some competition and have some 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 back and forth there in regards to price and then we could should probably have a, a discussion about the role of government but let's at least make things open and competitive first um, i would agree with you totally on that and the healthcare system at large doesn't want that really i've fought this battle i mean um, again there's a disconnect between the consumer and who pays the bill in, in most cases and when you have that honestly most people don't really care what the overall cost is, they want to know what their out-of-pocket cost is. We all need to be concerned about what the overall cost is. Hey, what's our insurance company paying for this? Because if we're not concerned about that, we can't get the, the price down. And we've done some anti-competitive things. There's a moratorium on physician-owned hospitals, for example. You can debate that, whether that's good or bad, but the reality is they've been shown to create competition in the marketplace and help drive down costs. So, and their quality is good. So yeah, the system at large is very frustrating. And, uh, you know, I have in 10 years, haven't made a big dent, but I've been trying. Wow, we need more consumer champions like that. So I like that. Uh, Congressman, in, in our last uh, minute and a half here, uh, what are some of the other topics and things that you'll 
be trying to push through the Congress. I know there's uh, there's a lot of games that are played with whips and votes and all the rest, uh, but what are some of the top topics, perhaps any that we didn't mention, uh, that you want to try to focus on in Congress here the next few months? Well, on the medical side, there's a cliff coming at the end of the year on reimbursement cuts to providers of 3.75%. Um, that is kind of a reimbursement snafu from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That's a big deal. It's going to hurt access. Also, the sequester cuts for medical people will be hitting. Uh, so right now, before the end of the year, I'm working on mitigating ways to make sure that the providers out there across the spectrum, whether that's physical therapists, whether that's physicians, whether that's hospitals, are properly paid by CMS for their services. Because if they're not, what they do is eliminate services and it limits access to seniors. So that's one of the big things I'm working on. We're obviously going to have to fund the government uh, and deal with the debt ceiling. It's going to be up to the Democrats to raise the debt ceiling. But we do need to fund the government in a fiscally responsible way. And, you know, since I've been in Congress for 10 years, it, we don't properly fund the government every year. We do all these extensions, and that's a big frustration because the budget process is really broken, uh, and both parties need to fix it. So those are the other big things before the end of the year, I think. Beautiful. Well, you heard it here. Uh, it was great to hear from Congressman Larry Bouchon from Indiana, giving us uh, all the specs on his thoughts of the day. Congressman, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me anytime. All right, guys, welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on the Big Talker 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM. I mentioned before we're going to play testimony from my colleague David Clement at the New York State Assembly. We're proud of our boy. Drove all the way down to Albany. David, take it away. Members of the committee, um, my name is David Clement. I am the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. Um, first, I'd like to obviously thank you for allowing for, allowing for me to provide testimony today. Uh, the CCC is a global consumer advocacy group. We advocate on behalf of consumers uh, regarding consumer goods, health and science, digital policy, and mobility, which is what brings me here today. Before I continue, I would like to offer you uh, regarding quote. Uh, and it's a quote in relation to some of the comments that have been made today by some of the other people who have courageously given their testimony. So this is a quote from April 7th, 2021, in Maine, to their Transportation uh, Standing Committee on a bill very similar to this. And, and I quote, we believe that the state should consider allowing all automakers to sell directly. Automakers are often criticized for not doing enough to sell, L to sell EVs, yet due to state laws like this, automakers are prohibited from selling EVs to consumers. Again, if the state wants to sell more EVs, then the state should allow all manufacturers to sell EVs directly. We ask the committee to consider an amendment that would allow all automakers to, complete, to compete on equal footing when it comes to selling EVs. We're just looking to give consumers the choice on how they would like to purchase an electric vehicle. Now, who said that? It wasn't me. It was someone we heard from already today. It was Wayne Weichel, the Senior Director of State Government Affairs um, at the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. 
And I use that quote to provide some color in regards to the debate that we're having today, just a few months later. Now, several months ago, my colleague Elizabeth Hicks and I published a research report titled the U.S. Uh, Electric Vehicle Accessibility Index. It's a national ranking evaluating a sta each state on how accessible the EV market is for consumers. The index evaluates each state's regulations for licensing fees and direct-to-consumer prohibitions. While not the worst state in the country, New York did not fare particularly well with a score of 5 out of 15, which puts it in the category of barely accessible. And so specifically in regards to this law, which the chairman has specified um, several times, which I think is very important to specifically address just the specifics of this law, I'll give you four reasons why I think direct-to-consumer sales should be permitted for emissionless vehicles. So the first is that the existing market for EVs is not accessible, nor is it consumer-friendly. As it stands, there's only five direct sale locations in the entire state, which underserves the residents of upstate New York, but beyond underserving those consumers and raising equitable access red flags, the direct sales limitation and current cap limits uh, and current cap limits consumer access to just one brand of electric vehicle. Consumers should have all EV options available to them, be able to purchase those vehicles from the manufacturer of their choice in a way in which they see fit, whether that be from an exist, a, a, a manufacturer's model from an existing dealer at a dealership owned by a manufacturer or directly from the manufacturer online. And it's important to note that this prohibition, as it currently stands, is a cost-inflating policy. The question has been asked several times, well, why don't these companies simply just involve themselves in the current system, the, the infrastructure that's already set up? Well, it's a cost-inflating policy. The operation of a standalone dealership increased costs, adds a middleman into the sale process, which inflates prices, which are often passed on to consumers. If we're looking for ways to expedite the EV revolution, policies that artificially inflate the cost of electric vehicles should be reviewed and repealed. Secondly, repealing the limitation on manufacturer directed consumer sales is a necessary step to ensure that New York State meets its own emission goals and that of the federal government, which is especially true given the role and size that New York State plays in that national discussion. As you are all well aware, the Biden administration and the New York Assembly have passed low emission and zero emission sales targets. Federally, President Joe Biden has stated that the goal um, is that by 2030, 50% of all vehicles sold in the nation will be electric. New York has set a similar goal, but as it stands right now, dealer registration rules act as a huge barrier for consumers who may be interested in purchasing an electric vehicle. If the state takes their interim goal seriously and their long-term goals seriously, they must move forward with this bill and repeal it because otherwise our concern is that they're putting the cart before the horse. And I apologize for my transportation pun. <laughs> Beyond the state's goal for EV sales, the same argument can be made in regards to tax credits. These tax credits, which are criticized by some for skewing towards the wealthy, 
won't have the desired impact if EVs are difficult to buy. This is especially true when we compare New York to other states who do not have this law in place, and many of whom who have recently repealed them. As per our research, there are 20, 22 states that do not have dealer franchise laws, which significantly increases access to electric vehicles and expands consumer choice. Those who are in favor of maintaining this law should have to provide clear and concrete evidence that consumers were harmed and are harmed in those states where this law doesn't exist. Luckily, they can't, because that evidence doesn't exist. It isn't there. By repealing dealer registration restrictions, New York State will be better situated to compete with those states in regards to electrical vehicle access in the race towards an emissionless future. In regards to charging infrastructure, again, the same case can be made. If electric vehicles are difficult to purchase, any amount of money spent on charging stations will be for nothing because you, will, you, simply, won't have the cons you simply won't have consumers having the availability or the access to have their demand met. The third reason why the dealer, why dealer uh, requirement restrictions should be repealed is that in doing so, it could or would also allow for the expansion of purchase online. For reference, direct-to-consumer sales are permitted in the used car market, and consumer, consumer demand for these car purchasing platforms has increased dramatically. If we use Carvana as an example, an online company that sells used vehicles, they reported a 37% increase in online purchases with over 244,000 cars sold through their site in 2020. I think that works out to about one car every two minutes. And additionally, that company has also reported that they saw a 24% increase in the purchase of electric vehicles in 2020. These figures show that consumers want, and most importantly, are comfortable with, purchasing vehicles in a direct-to-consumer model that sidesteps the dealer franchise model entirely. This begs the question, why can a resident of New York buy a used car and have it ready to, ready to drive and delivered to their home, but someone wanting to purchase a new electric vehicle cannot? I think that discrepancy, quite, discrepancy shows quite clearly that there is a need to repeal this prohibition so that consumer demand can be appropriately met. The last reason why emissionless vehicles should be allowed to be sold directly is that their current business model ensures transparency and price accountability. The existing dealer franchise model, while some have said that um, there is instances of, of price competition between dealers, and that can be certainly appreciated, that, that um, setup in regards to variable pricing from transaction to transaction allows for pre-existing biases to creep in. This can be problematic from a consumer's perspective. It can also be problematic from a social justice perspective. There have been several examples of where biases, racial or otherwise, have crept in and skewed the buying process for consumers purchasing vehicles in the market as it is now. The direct-to-consumer model, as it is uh, in other states, largely sidesteps many of those issues. Prior to me, the Dealers Association has said that their model is better 
for consumers. And I'm not here actually to say that one model is better than the other. Their model may be better, but it does beg some very interesting questions. The first is, if their model is better than the direct-to-consumer model, why are they fighting tooth and nail against an inferior model? And the second question is, who decides what is best for consumers? I'll answer that on behalf of consumers. And the answer is we do. Open the market and let consumers decide which model works best for them. Members of the committee, I thank you for hearing our concerns. I urge you to proceed uh, in allowing for the direct sale of emissionless vehicles so that New York's car market can ultimately be more consumer friendly and by extension, more environmentally friendly. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. Are there any questions? Seeing none, thank you very much for wait. Oh, there Sorry, could I just, yeah, just, uh, just very quickly. Okay. How, uh, thank you so much, and this was helpful, and again, I'm sorry I had stepped away. Um, but how do you address the concern that was raised um, uh, about the advocacy uh, that um, the, the dealers the, uh, that did come in today talked a lot about the advocacy with the manufacturer, uh, that that's um, something they could do better uh, than, than with a direct sale where somebody would have to take on the manufacturer, the, the consumer would have to take on the manufacturer themselves. If, if you could address that, I would. Yeah, you know, of course. I, I, and I appreciate your last, before you answer that, I also want to appreciate your last point about that, um, or one of your last points about that consumers have repeatedly shown, especially um, underserved populations uh, or uh, women, mm -hmm. uh, often the, the surveys have shown that they prefer the direct uh, sales because of the transparency and the, the lack of negotiation. So I appreciate that. And I don't know if you gave a copy of your testimony, but uh, I sure would like to in. see it. You yes. emailed it. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, but then, yes, if you could address that other piece, I would Yeah. So, it. I mean, if we were to have a scenario where EV manufacturers are allowed to be dealers, then all of the existing consumer protections in regards to that dealership would exist. And that's been mentioned already, the Lemon Law and warranties and things like that. Um, in regards to whether or not the relationship between consumer and manufacturer is equal to or worse than what, we, what was advocated for by the Dealers Association, the numbers, if we look at electric vehicles, suggest that that relationship is tolerable or accepted from consumers. If we look at purchasing patterns in New York, I mean, by a factor of five, EV consumers are choosing to purchase via the direct-to-consumer model over the dealership model. And so if that relationship was so sour um, or was so anti-consumer and consumers were being, um, being mistreated by that particular EV manufacturer, um, which is the example that I'm using, well then... I highly doubt that those people who are passionate about buying electric vehicles would do so in that model when there is another one that they can go to. And we've heard from the association and others that they are strong advocates for this, um, but the data doesn't suggest that that's what consumers want and the model that they want to purchase electric vehicles from. Thank you. All very, oh, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Look at that. Not every day you get a Consumer Choice Center uh, staff member up there in New York.
Uh, so great on David. Thank you guys for listening to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, what a time. Check out our website. Check out those podcasting 2.0 apps. Get your podcast wallets all filled up and boost that button. We'll talk to you guys next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in 
every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. Thank you again for listening. of America.